guys, this is Kevin Can with Boston Strongcast. I'm joined here, as always, by the one and only Alyssa Orlando. Hello, everyone. And I am also joined uh, from, where are you now, Evan? You in Rhode Island? I'm in Fort Collins, Colorado. Oh, shit. And we're joined <laughs> by Evan Chafee all the way from Fort Collins, Colorado. Um, say hi, Evan. Hey, how's it going? So Evan actually trains a bunch of what we call our team precision cousins. So Kyle Power, Eddie Chu, and uh, he coached uh, Frank Carr for a little bit of time. So I want to get Evan on here to kind of meet him, learn a little bit more about him, and uh, go from there. So uh, we'll get right into it. So Evan, tell us a little bit about your background as it relates to uh, fitness and powerlifting. So I graduated from the University of Rhode Island in 2014 um, with a degree in exercise science. Uh, I've done uh, coaching uh, while I was in college. Um, I started off in strength and conditioning. I had done a, a handful of internships both in private sector and uh, collegiate. Um, I actually worked down in Rhode Island for a little while and then I also worked in Massachusetts. Um, in right around 2013, 2012, I started coaching powerlifting, um, and I've kind of just been doing that since. Um, I still do very much enjoy strength and conditioning stuff. It's definitely influenced a lot of what my powerlifting coaching is. Um, but yeah, so I've kind of been a little all over the place with um, as far as what I've seen and what I've experienced and who I've worked under. So it's been it's been good. I mean, I think, you know, as you're getting into the field, I think that's the way that it's supposed to go. You're supposed to learn from as many people as possible. Um, I also, I, I interned at Harvard um, in their strength and conditioning um, program. And what did you think of actually working in that team atmosphere of strength and conditioning compared to, like, the differences of working maybe one-on-one -on -one with power lifters? Um, it's definitely, it's different. Um, you've got to manage your time much more efficiently than you would say if you were working one-on-one -on -one with someone. Um, people don't necessarily get as much direct attention as they may need um, because you've got, say, 30 athletes in, in the training room at one time. Um, but it, it takes a different skill set, I'd say. I, I agree with that. I, it, it has its pros and cons. Like For me, it was fun just being in that team setting and the like camaraderie of the group and everybody's like you know, cheer, cheering each other on and like the way they did it at Harvard is the four biggest squats got to squat and uh, squat rack one. So there was always like this little competition like going on. So it was fun. But you're right. There were a lot of underclassmen who had very little um, experience underneath the barbell and they're not getting the supervision that they need and, you know, probably not the most out of their strength and conditioning programs. Uh, right, and, and with with training too, um, it, it's kind of blanketed template for specific teams. Um, there's a little bit of individual variation, but I mean, for people who need um, specific things, it, it, sometimes it gets uh, often like overlooked a little bit, just because you've got so many people. Especially for the head coach who's working with four, five, six, seven teams, um, it, it can get a little overwhelming. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so tell us a little bit about how you started your powerlifting career as an athlete. So I started while I was in college, actually. Um, so I used to train at Next Level Athletic Training Center in uh, in Johnson, Rhode Island. And I used to lift there for strength, just strength and conditioning stuff. I played football and volleyball in high school, and I did it just for sport performance. Um, and the... 
everyone who works there and who and the owners of that gym are all or were at one point IPF powerlifters. So they all competed at the world stage, um, and they kind of got me into it um, because, like, I I left their program, went to college, kind of didn't really have anything to compete in. Uh, I came back, everyone was kind of powerlifting. Like, I, I got kind of sucked in a little bit, and. So I went away to college, and uh, I'm not sure if you know who Deesa Hatfield is, but she uh, was my strength and conditioning professor at URI, and she's actually actually Dr. Squat's daughter. Um, and she put on a just an unsanctioned uh, powerlifting meet at the, the school just to kind of get people to see what it is and get people to compete. And I kind of did that. Um, I actually competed at like 132 or something like that. Um, and so I, I, I kind of did that one. I got into it. I, I moved back home um, during my senior year of college uh, because I was doing my internship at Next Level, actually. And um, they started. They, were, they actually hosted a meet that year, and I just kind of picked up on it and just kept going. That's pretty cool. It's almost one of those like right place, right time uh, situations. Exactly. So actually, funny story is uh, when I had first started at TPS, Fred Hatfields had come and did like a free seminar. I got freaking wasted with him with him in the lobby of a bar in a hotel in freaking Chelsea, Massachusetts. Uh, but it was like one of my most fun like moments in the like in my coaching career, like getting drunk with Dr. Squats. Um, That's pretty cool. I don't <laughs> think many people can say they've done that. Right, exactly. Um, so what made you want to start coaching powerlifters? So, you know, you did all these internships. You had, you know, the ability to maybe go that strength and conditioning route, but you ended up coaching powerlifters. What finally made you make that decision? Um, I kind of got the hard truth of, like, I don't – I'm not big enough and I don't look the part to be a D1 collegiate strength coach. And, like, I feel like – actually, the one who broke it to me was the Ohio State uh, head football coach. And – uh, he was just kind of like, yeah, it sucks. Like, you're definitely smart enough to do it. But a lot of D1 strength and conditioning is you have to be that big, commanding, six foot, 400 pound. Like, you have to look the part in order for your athletes to um, try and, like, buy in. And, and it totally made sense to me. Uh, so I kind of took the, the other route and started looking into D2 and D3 programs. And it just ended up not being what I wanted. Um, I started liking powerlifting more and more. And I got more into the movement side of things. And um, I just kind of fell in love with it. So uh, I started coaching and it just kind of grew. It was it was between, I don't know, like 2013 to 2014. I just started like slowly picking up um, more and more lifters, just kind of, I, I, when I first started, I, I did it all for free. Like, uh, and I still coach a lot of those guys today. Um, but it's it just kind of like a tumbleweed kind of thing where I just kept going and going with it. And it just, it was something that was natural to me. And a lot of these, um, lifters that you coach, they're primarily online, correct? Yes. I don't have any in-person lifters. Okay, so um, that's actually that's pretty cool. Uh, so, what made you actually want to go that route and take your take your business online? Um, that right when I started was when online coaching kind of started to take off a little bit, um, and I saw that I could kind of reach a little like more quality level lifters. Because um, if I stuck, I kept myself to what was in my surrounding area. If I had ever moved, I knew I had wanted to eventually come out west, which I did. Um, I would kind of lose the people who I had strictly in person. So I kind of 
brought it all online and just kind of branched out a little bit. And then in 2014, I want to say, I got hired on by a company based out of London called Shredded by Science. Um, and I, we were coaching for a while. And um, as of the past couple of years, we, we aren't really coaching anymore, but we transitioned more into an educational academy kind of content. So we're working with some of the top level researchers and uh, some of the top coaches. So we've got uh, Eric Helms and Mike Zordos on staff, and uh, we teach lecture style uh, content. So it, the way it works is it's a 52 week long academy, and it's separated into four different uh, units. Uh, one being on gen pop, another on powerlifting, one on bodybuilding, and then one on business. And we kind of uh, educate, we coach coaches how to coach, basically. And um, so that that's been another huge opportunity for me to kind of reach out for um, and kind of branch myself out to other places around the world uh, as far as coaching goes. So I've got athletes in Germany. I've got some in London still. I've got some in Australia, Canada. So it's been really fun. It's actually pretty cool, like, you know, that you have multiple people in different countries like that. And so you said it's shredded by science. Is that shreddedbyscience.com? Would that be their website? I'm sorry, I couldn't hear you. Um, the website, Shredded by Science, is it shreddedbyscience.com? It is. And is it a, like, paid subscription for coaches if they're interested in that? It is, yes. Um, so I'm not, I don't work anything with the billing end of things, but I know we can do it. It's a one upfront thing or, like, a, a separate payment. But, yeah, it's it's a full year long. Um, and, I mean, the amount of feedback we've gotten from it has been incredible like it keeps growing year on year and um, I was actually down in Texas for a seminar uh, like a couple months ago and um, the guy who owned the gym uh, that we were giving the seminar at uh, he's been through the academy all of his trainers have to go through the academy Uh, he's a huge supporter of it and it was really cool getting to meet a lot of the people who have gone through it and have seen my lectures and have like they, they knew who I was, but I didn't necessarily know anything about them. So it was, it was really cool to kind of get to network and see that. It's also pretty cool that there's starting to be enough of enough power lifters to actually have a need for something like that to actually start like educating coaches on the on the strength sports. And like I think that's a good sign for the overall growth of the sport moving forward as well. Yeah. Um, Uh, what are some of the things you actually enjoy about coaching clients online? Um, it, not that it frees up time, but I feel like I can help more people if I'm not glued to a, uh, like a strict schedule. Um, and the the kind of people that I work with don't necessarily need so much one-on-one all the time. So, um, if they do live close, uh, I will make trips out to go visit people and work with people if like they need things uh like i was just back in rhode island and um for around new year's and everybody came down to next level and uh we were working on things and we're just getting a lift in having fun um but as far as just overall coaching people online um i don't know i i I just i think it's it's still doable there are definitely benefits to coaching in person, but um, for the most part, with the population that I work with, online seems to be a pretty good medium. I think the value of in-person coaching, of course there is a, there is some value to it and stuff, but I think you know what happens too often is you get a coach who stands there and they 
give you feedback on every single rep and it doesn't become like a real training session like the you can just see the lifter just almost like has this like paralysis by analysis because they're being told so much i think that online forum where you get that little bit of feedback and you give them something to just focus on and get better it kind of allows them to train and make the progress that way where they're actually like training and not just being coached the entire time i think there's some um positives to that aspect of the online coaching so definitely i mean like you said not constantly feel like they're being watched and every little thing's being criticized and they've got a million different cues going through their head it gives them time to process things and actually work on it themselves and then send me some video for feedback right and it's not like you know anything happens you know i mean of course there are times where it's like they're doing something giving some feedback and they fix it right away but a lot of times it's just like they're their efficiency in the movement itself is just it's it just needs improvement it just needs more time under the bar and like there's no magic words that are going to fix it other than putting the right weight on the bar for the right amount of reps over the right amount of time and it ends up fixing itself and i think like for me because obviously you know my coach is in another country so you know I've, i've gone through this process and i feel it's made me a much better lifter doing it that way than if i had somebody like standing over me and just um, critiquing every little thing that I did the whole time. It teaches you how to be an athlete and make decisions for yourself. Exactly. Um, so let's get into more like the programming type of stuff that you do. So, you know, I've kind of seen like Kyle and Eddie and stuff go through, um, you know, weeks and months and stuff of training. But uh, what does like a typical week look like for one of your lifters? Um, it depends on the lifter. Um, most people I have are squatting between two and three times a week. Um, they'll bench and it really depends on the person for bench, but usually between three and five, uh, some people will bench six and not very, not like that's pretty rare. Um, deadlifts for the most part, people between one and two times. Um, but, uh, what, what kind of specifics do you want on programming? Just like frequencies? Yeah, like like frequencies. Um, you utilize RPA, RPEs, and not intensity uh, for intensity or um, percentages, like stuff like that. Gotcha. Okay, so I, I do utilize RPE quite heavily, um, but I also use it in conjunction with percentage-based programming. Um, so what I'll tend to do is give somebody a percentage. That way, it, my spreadsheets will, will calculate a load based on their their training max, and it, it gives them something to shoot for. Uh, so I usually tell them use that number for your warmups. If warming up towards that number is feeling great, awesome. Uh, follow your RPE, bump the numbers up. If it's feeling not too awesome that day, maybe use your RP and bump the numbers down. But it gives you something to at least have in mind for when you walk in the door that day. Um, because that's one of the common things I don't like about pure RPE-based training is that some days like I just don't even know where my numbers are going to end up. And I don't want to have to do all this extra warm-up stuff just for the sake of finding a half a point difference kind of thing. Right. Um, so I like giving people a target. And a different way I'll do it too is giving a percentage range. So maybe 70 to 75% for if somebody's not so good with RPE and say, hey, um, go in with this percentage range in mind. Uh, stick to the lower end if you're not feeling great, but stick to the higher end if, you, if you're feeling really good. Um, that way they're at least getting the stimulus that I want them to get and they're not just kind of all over the place with their loads from week to week. Um, but I do, over the course of the, uh, the week, I do program with a more DUP style um, of programming. Uh, it, so typically we'll fluctuate um, 
depending on where they are in the training year and how close they are to a meet uh, between volume or fatigue management days and heavier sessions. Um, so let's say, for example, somebody squatting three times a week, um, they'll have a higher volume, more fatiguing session at the beginning of the week. Um, they're likely still carrying some of that fatigue towards the middle. So instead of just taking a rest day and taking it off, um, we could slot in something uh, like triples or doubles uh, around 75 to 80%, something that's still uh, getting them to practice the skill and retain the technique, uh, but it's still helping to bring fatigue down because it's nothing that's going to uh, incur more fatigue. That way it sets you up to um, have a much better session on that the end of the week where your, your heavy day is. How heavy does the heavy day get? Um, depending. It depends. So like, let's say somebody has fresh out of a meet. Um, and they're, they're, this is their first training block back, uh, maybe 75% for fives or sixes. Um, something, nothing more than like an RPE seven, seven and a half. But as you get, uh, as we move into like intensity blocks or we're getting closer to a meet, I mean, we're, we'll start seeing things like heavy triples, heavy doubles. Um, I do incorporate uh, top sets to RPE uh, if the, the lifter is accustomed to it, if they can handle it and they're responsible enough to know not to overshoot. Um, Kyle's actually very good with that. Not not overshooting, but actually hitting the numbers. Um, but uh, so I use that as kind of a gauge to figure out, okay, we're getting close to a meet. Let's do a top set triple to a, a seven. And then over the course of the weeks, maybe we'll hit a top triple to an eight or a top double to uh, an eight, whatever. I'll use that and kind of watch where the estimated 1RMs are going because that'll give me a better prediction of where uh, meet day performance is going to be and I can kind of um, assess and base my uh, attempt selections off of those numbers. So say as you're getting closer to the meet you're taking that third squat day because you know 75% for some fives or sixes or something is still quite a lot of volume. So is it that just that one day that you're starting to decrease the volume and raise the intensity to... Um, kind of peak for the meet or are you altering the other two squat days at the same time like decreasing volume and stuff um, so yeah de- volume will decrease as a whole over the course of all three sessions um, depending on what kind of lifter they are so if it's somebody who responds really well to higher reps I may leave a little bit more volume in uh, on that higher rep day the reps will still come down so we're not going to be doing 10s or 8s or anything right, uh, three weeks out from a meet but uh, if there's somebody who needs to keep in volume I mean higher reps are an easier way to acquire volume uh, just to maintain um, whereas some people I know uh, like Kyle too Kyle's very good with high intensity stuff um, he I, I would necessarily or I would more keep his higher intensity days volume a little bit higher and drop off the, the lower intensity higher rep stuff um, like with nationals we I noticed that when I did that um, he maintained strength really really well all the way through the taper um, he ended up squat like I'm still I tell him all the time I'm still a little butthurt over his third attempt squat because he, he definitely hit depth he crushed it uh, and uh, he squatted it but they, they told me he was a little high but um yeah, he, he did awesome at Nationals. He peaked right on point. Um, so he's, he's one of the examples of people who I can keep heavy stuff in for longer, whereas I've got other people who they need to taper really hard and just really get a, um, a big pullback on intensity towards uh, the meat. 
Yeah. I, you know, I feel that that taper, it is extremely individualized. And I know there's some like blanket rules out there that like sometimes, you know, smaller females and stuff, they don't need as long to taper. And like some of that stuff is true, but like it is extremely individualized. You might have somebody that fits into like a bracket that they should just, they should be able to have a quick taper, but it just takes them longer than others. Like I literally have a 105 kilogram national level lifter who can do heavier stuff closer to a meet than a 93 kilogram lifter who needs a way longer taper than he does. And like a lot of it just, they're relatively similar lifters too. So, you know, sometimes it just doesn't make sense. Um, and it's really individualized. So, yeah. And I mean, that's something you just need to, you need to go through multiple training cycles with people to really fine tune it. Like the people who have had the longest, I, I understand how to taper them the best. But if I have somebody who I acquire six weeks out from a meet, I mean, it's almost a shot in the dark because I really don't know uh, how they respond to things unless they somehow collected uh, a whole bunch of data and like all their programs leading into a past meet where they did really well. So it, it definitely is really hard. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so your taper, what, what is like the average length of a taper? Like is there a range of uh, days that you go before the meet? Um, it, it, that is, depends on the lifter. Like some of my bigger lifters, usually the 93 and above, uh, I would taper for at least two weeks. Um, first week being a like a 60% volume taper, so I'll, I'll keep 60% of the previous week's volume, and then the final week I'll cut another 30% or so off, and I'll drop the intensity down a little bit. Um, that's usually just for the, the stronger, heavier guys, um, just because they're moving higher absolute loads, and they're going to like undoubtedly have more fatigue than, uh, say, a, a 63-kilo women woman. Um, but for women, I, they, I'm still figuring women out. Um, they, they can range from like, I have a 72 who needs like two and a half weeks to taper her squat. Whereas I have, uh, another 63 who I can have her hit a, a heavy squat single like 98% three days out and she would be perfectly fine. Um, it's, it, it kind of blows my mind, but for the most part I see with bench, um, they're all, most women are right around the same boat where they can um, taper about five to seven days out uh, or even leading right into the meet and they'll be perfectly fine. Like I've got some 57s who will hit their, their final opener um, on bench the night before their meet. Shit. Um, do you guys test before or do you just use your estimated maxes for attempt selection? Uh, I don't test, no. So the most we will typically go is um, like 95-ish percent of whatever their true max would be, um, So, which would be about an RPE 9, 9.5. Okay. Um, but, I mean, it, it depends on the person. If it's somebody who's really comfortable going heavy, then we'll, we'll push the, the intensity numbers a little bit longer. But um, I've got some people who are just afraid of touching weight that they're not comfortable with. So for those people, we I'll tend to stick to like a the heaviest will go as a single at an RPE8, just something to build confidence, something to get me some um, some information to pick attempts with, and then we'll leave uh, the heaviest weights for when they're confident after they've already hit their first attempts um, and they're fresh. So when you're picking attempts, what type of data do you use to uh, pick them, and what what would like uh, a typical like percentage of estimated max opener type of thing be so i'll 
use RPE, so like like I was saying, I'll find their estimated max from any of the top tests we've been doing from the weeks prior. Like and singles? I'll kind of take it a top, running average. Like top singles? Yeah, singles or doubles. Uh, okay. Usually anything less than three reps. Um, just because the more reps you're doing, the less accurate it's going to be. Right. But I'll take a running average of the estimated 1RM from those, and I'll kind of set that as what I'm thinking their target would be, especially after a taper. It should be uh, in that ballpark, if not above. Um, and then I'll plan my attempt selections based off of that. So my usual first attempt for uh, a squatter bench is right around 89 to 91%. Um, a little higher if they've been looking great. Uh, second attempt is right around 95 to 96.5%. And then third attempt can be 99 to 101+. plus. Um, third attempt or more, I usually tell people like that's made on the pl- like that decision is made on the platform after your second attempt um, because it, it's kind of hard to really forecast a, a super exact third attempt. Like you don't know the situation, you don't know if you're jockeying for positions. Um, like I usually leave that to game day. Yeah, I mean that that makes sense, and, and stuff happens on game day, and you can always make the necessary adjustments. I mean, we do almost the exact same thing for meat selections. Um, so what is what have been some of the highlights of your coaching career thus far in powerlifting? Uh, my personally or coaching? Both. Uh, Let's do both. Um, I mean, I am not the most uh, highly ranked athlete out there. I much prefer coaching. I kind of compete once or twice a year just to say that I still compete kind of thing. Um, I don't believe I am going to compete at nationals again. Uh, I usually end up just coaching the entire week. Um, but... Uh, I have pulled uh, a 600-pound raw deadlift at like 153 pounds-ish. Um, that's probably my highlight. Um, as far as athletes go, uh, I think I am grateful for all of them. I don't think there's one standout. I have had um, a national champion in 
there seems to be this huge division uh, amongst lifters between uh, different federations and lots of call-outs on just stuff that just doesn't need to be even mentioned. Um, like, just putting other lifters down for things they post in training, and it's, it, it gets a little much. Right. There's not enough power lifters out there for us not to like each other. Right. Like, it's a small enough niche community where, like, first of all, like, you know, any type of communication like that on the internet is unnecessary at any given time regardless. But, like, it's the same sport. It's unnecessary, and it's not good for the growth of the sport over time. Um, but I think overall, I think everything looks good for the sport in the future. Um and hopefully it continues to grow. So yes, la- I agree. last question, and this one's more uh, for me personally. Uh, if, if you could give advice to someone is interested in beginning an online coaching business, what would it be? Hmm, okay. Do your time, I guess. Don't jump in and expect people to pay you for what you think you have. Give, give yourself plenty of time to do things for free and learn. Like, don't expect, don't just automatically assume that you know how to coach and how to program and like what everyone needs. Do your time. Like, I think I learned the most when I was coaching people for free. Um, I, it gives you time to screw up. It gives you time to learn things, learn what doesn't work, learn how to make things efficient. Um, but go in and offer to coach somebody for free or go to your friends. Just be like, hey, I want to learn how to do this. I want to kind of use you um, as like to, to learn on. Uh, is, are you okay with this? Um, and just kind of make it a mutual thing. So say, yes, I'm going to ha- try and help you get stronger, but you're also going to help me learn how to program, how to coach, how to do all this stuff. Yeah, I mean, I think, like, for me, too, and on top of that, like, actually going out there and doing that, like, it gives you more people, too, so you see more stuff, and you just, you're able to gather more data, and um, literally doing that, because other coaches in the past have told me to do the same thing, and going out and actually just reaching out, like you just said, has been one of the, I think, most important things I've done in my coaching career at any level, like, education-wise, um, all, all of that stuff. I think I think that's great advice. Um, so we'll wrap up there, Evan. Thank you very much for coming on. Uh, we appreciate it. And uh, well, I'll be at Next Level at the end of February for a competition. So uh, maybe if you're around, we'll run into each other then. But we'll have to get a lift in sometime. Yeah, for sure. Thanks for having me on, guys. All right. Take care, Evan. And stay strong, Boston. All right. See ya.